Have you read uh, C.S. Lewis? Any C.S. Lewis? Mere Christianity, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Screw Tape Letters. That was uh, what that's from. Uh, two devils trying to apprentice devils trying to trip up Christians. And one of the more obscure works of C.S. Lewis. But uh, when Kevin said he could write something for this, I was going like, Oh, that is cool. I love that book. So uh, you'll be seeing more of these folks over the next couple of weeks as we encounter the whole thing of uh, this answering this question, what is a Christian? We began last week to talk about this. This is the second week of a series that's going to be on for, you know, a few weeks now. And um, we talked about the problem in last week. What we did is we kind of played a word game and I asked you, you know, here's some words. Well, how do you define them? And I said, if you if we threw out the word Christian to uh, to you, how would you define that? And. And I find that probably if I divided you into groups, you'd probably have some disagreement about what the word Christian means. Because uh, the word Christian can have so much baggage to it, so many things that's going on. Many people will say, well, I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Or I'm a Christian because of this. And based on your background, it might say, well, I'm a Christian because I was confirmed. Or I was a Christian because I was baptized. Or I was a Christian because of this or because of that. Or you might say, I was a Christian because I was part of the church. Whatever the church is. You know, and uh, and we shared about that last week some for a while. And we talked about that. And the problem is, you know, and a lot of people will simply say to you, you know, and, and we shared this week and I, last week I had it up on the screen, that some people, even honest people, will say to you, well, I'm not a Christian, uh, or if I am a Christian, I'm not that kind of a Christian. Because that kind of a Christian is not is like this. Because there's so much baggage attached to this word Christian. And uh, many people will even say, well, I don't believe that I want to be a Christian because, you know, generally culture says that Christians are judgmental, homophobic, uh, moralists who think that they're the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Now, that's a brutal type of description of what a Christian is, but that is a cultural adaptation of what uh, many people believe Christians are, that we're just exactly that. Now, the interesting thing about it, though, is this, is that as we try to define the word Christian from Scripture, we can't do it. You're going, can't? No. You know the word Christian is only used three times in all the New Testament? And never, it's by the followers of Christ. The followers of Christ never call themselves Christians. The word Christian is only used in three contexts in Scripture, and we talked about some of those last week, where people that are outside the faith describe the people that were following Christ as Christians. And it was kind of a negative connotation. Oh, it's those Christians. It's kind of like they're geeks. Or whatever you want to call them, jocks, or you know, whatever it is, and whatever you know, put down they could. And so, so often in culture we we see that, and so that's what happens. But in scripture, if we wanted to find what it is to be a follower of Christ, the word Christian may be fuzzy, but there was one word that Christians consistently, or followers of Christ consistently, call themselves that's clearly defined in scripture, and that's the word disciple. The word disciple. The word disciple is so clearly defined that it almost becomes scary, and sometimes that's why we don't want to use that word. Because it means that, you know, we're a disciple. A disciple is someone who's a learner, is a pupil, is an adherent, a follower, uh, all these things, an apprentice. That's what the word disciple means. And the disciples of Jesus Christ were ones who basically said to Christ, Jesus, you tell me how to live my life and I'll do it that way. Whatever, whatever you want me to do, the answer is yes. That's what a disciple was in Scripture and is. And we've separated these words Christian and disciple so much in our culture, sometimes we don't think they're, we think they're two different entities, but they're not. If you call yourself a follower of Christ, you need to define yourself by what the Bible defines it as, and that is what a disciple is. And so we began last.
to talk about what that means in regards to uh, how would we define what a Christian is and how would we define what a follower of Christ is, a disciple is. And the question we need to ask ourselves is this, are we disciples? Are we disciples? And so we're beginning to flesh this out last week, and we've said that what Jesus said, one of the things he said in John 13 was this. He says, a new command I give you. And that doesn't sound too new because he says, love one another. And he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says this in verse 35 of John 13. He says, by this everyone will know that you are what? My disciples, because you love one another. He says the mark, the the main mark of discipleship of a person who is a follower of Christ is that they love as Christ loves, as God loves. That's the distinguishing mark. Remember, we've talked about this dozens and dozens of times in in church here at Great Oaks, that the, the basic command about the thing that we're to do, it says in what in the great commandment, it says this, it says, I love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And he said, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said this. We talked about this last week. Then he says this at the end of that. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It means, in a sense, it's what he's saying. And we sometimes just throw that off because he's saying all these other 600 commandments that are in Scripture, in the Old Testament, all the things that you do are to be filtered through the commandment of love, through the, through the filter of love, of loving persons and loving God as God loves us. He's saying everything else depends upon this one thing. Everything's to be filtered through this, through love. And so the question for a disciple, a person who follows Christ, is this. This is the main question. What does love require of me? What does love require of me? In every situation, what does love require of me? The kind of love that God has for us. And so we began today to flesh that out a little bit further. Because uh, I think it's important for us to get a clear picture of what the Bible says in regard to what it means to be a disciple who asks the question, what does love require of me? But today what we're going to do is we're going to take, begin a journey as over the next few weeks of fleshing out this. And we call them core values at Great Oaks. And I had them in the bulletin back a while back and on the back of the bulletin. And we talked about those a little bit. But we're going to continue to talk about them one each week here as we go through this series. Now, this morning, as we talk about one of the principles and one of the core values that, that answers the question, what does love require of me? I want us to think back to the top 12 disciples. You know, the guys who were followers of Jesus, the big 12. They became apostles. This is something where you can give feedback this morning. I know we don't do this too often in Scripture. I mean Scripture. In church. But uh, you can this morning. If you're thinking about the top 12, the guys that followed Jesus around, and when you think about the top dog and all those people, who was the top dog? Peter. He was always the one who took the lead. He was always the one. And what did Peter do that was so incredibly cool that no other disciple did? Walked on water. Now, I don't know if you think that's cool or not. But I think, I mean, we've, we've been kind of desensitized in our culture because we've seen David Copperfield do incredible things. And, and you know, and, and uh, uh, whatever the guy is now, uh, Chris, what's his name? Chris Angel, you know, levitating. I don't you know. I, obviously some kind of a, you know, some kind of a weird thing. But, you know, this is not, this wasn't magic tricks. Peter had the faith to walk on water. He was the guy that was always taking the lead. He was the, always the guy who kind of like, you know, he was always, you know, number one guy falling along. When you think of those disciples. So keep that in mind as we look at this today. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to look at some verses there this morning that talk about this whole thing of Peter and how 
the important principle we're going to look at this morning. If you look at chapter 26 of, of, of Matthew, and this is toward the end of Matthew, if you look at it, it's only 28 chapters there. But if you look at that chapter 26, what has been going on prior to this with the disciples? They've been following Jesus, the whole life of Jesus. They've been following him for best approximately three years in ministry. They had done through all this. Peter had walked on water. They'd done all these different things. And then they come where Jesus, in, in chapter 26, he, uh, there, they comes to the place where, where uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is there, he's, becomes, he's arrested. Uh, and he's taken into custody by the by the uh, Roman officials, and then we read uh, in in chapter in chapter 26 verse 56 it says when all this happened when Jesus was arrested all these guys these top 12 guys that had been with Jesus all along the way what did they do? It says they all end of chapter end of verse end um, of verse 56 that all the disciples deserted him and fled. They all deserted him and fled. They took off in different directions. These top 12 guys, these guys of faith, these guys that had followed Jesus, they all took off. And it says in verse, in verse 58, it says about Peter particularly, it says this is what Peter did. They fled, but Peter followed him at a distance. Peter followed him at a distance. Now, so often in a Christian life, we think we can get by with following Jesus at a distance, but I want to tell you, it doesn't work out. Like, I can follow Jesus at a distance. I can have him on my agenda. You know, he can be the thing I do on Sunday. But if it's not part of the rest of the week, you know, it's, that's not what a disciple does. A disciple says yes to Jesus. This is what I do every day of the week in every situation. What would Jesus do? Literally. And then does it. That's the picture that's painted clearly in Scripture. And it says that Peter followed him in a distance. And he did this right up to the courtyard of the high priest as they were entering in, taking Jesus in. It says he entered... And he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. What did he do? Peter had been over here earlier with the 12 disciples, the, 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 the big 12. He'd been hanging out with these guys who, who were followers of Christ, who were true disciples of Christ. And then when something happens, what he does, he takes off and he flees. And where does he end up? What's the group he's ended up with now? He's with the enemy. He's sitting down with those who are far away from Christ. And he hangs out with them. And then over the next few verses, in verse 69 through 75, we see the outcome of what's happening. Because, you know, why did the guys flee? Why did all these 12 disciples flee? Why? This because they're human. Jesus was being arrested. So what happens? They're going like, oh, you know, if I hang around Jesus, I'll be arrested too. They were human. They weren't supermen. They were people who needed Christ. Just as much as we need Christ. And so they, they did this. And then in verse, the verses, um, the next few verses, verses 69 and 75, uh, we see these, this is what happened. It says, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him, probably a middle schooler. Now middle schoolers can be scary. Those who work with middle schoolers know this. But the issue, and if you have a middle schooler in your home, you know, middle schoolers can be scary. I'm just guessing. I don't know about the, the Greek. It's not exactly true, sure, but it's kind of like a young, a young girl, servant girl, came to him. And she looks at him, and she goes, talking to Peter. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. Super disciple leader Peter denies that he knows Jesus. First time. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. 
And then he went out to the gateway where another girl, I don't know if she was a middle schooler or not, maybe she was high school, I don't know. Another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. And he says he denies it again with an oath. I don't know the man. I don't know if he said it that way, but he said it with force. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said to him, surely you're the one of them. Your accent gives you away. And I don't know what kind of accent he had. Maybe he had a southern accent, which is very acceptable. Maybe when he said repent, he went repent. You know, I don't know. I don't know what he did, but something about his accent gave it away. I can do southern pretty well if I want to. Okay. Even though I'm not. But anyway... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All you Midwesterners. Okay. Um, <clears throat> then he began to call. And it says, surely your, ac- your accent gives you away. Then, then it says this. Then he began to call down curses. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And we'll go back to that in a minute. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The point is this. The first step away from God is usually a step away from the people of God. The first step away from God is usually a step away from the people of God. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen this to be true. The people, you know, that, that they, they're committed to Christ and they go down the road and they get for something happens in their life. And they, the first step is just to quit attending church. Not that attending church makes you a Christian. I've told you that before. No more than sitting in the garage makes you a car. But the issue is, is that it's, it's, you're there, you're connected to other believers. And just going to church on Sunday morning, as we talk about, is not enough either. Because you're just sitting in rows. You're not really interacting at all. I mean, I'm, once in a while I get you to say something. Once in a while when we sing a song, you'll actually sing. And you never get excited. We'll talk about that later, too. But the issue is, the first step away from God is usually a step away from the people of God. And the reason for that, this is the question, this is the thing that we have to understand about discipleship and about being a disciple, is we can't live life alone. God didn't make us to live life alone. We cannot be, like it said in the sketch, we cannot be lone rangers. One of the devil's greatest things that he tries to get us to do is he tries to get us to live life alone. I don't need anybody else. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. We can't live a life alone. And the reason we can't live a life alone is because of that statement. It says because everybody swerves. And let me explain that. When I first started driving many, many years ago, my first car was really cool. It was a 57 Chevy. It really wasn't cool. Uh, It sounds cool, but it wasn't. It was a 57 Chevy station wagon with rusted out floor panels and everything, you know. And one of my early cars, though, the really cool car was my 62 Volkswagen Beetle, you know. Really cool car. I mean, it was so cool that it didn't have a gas gauge on it. Literally. Uh, I, you know, how you knew you was running out of gas? You'd be going down the road and all of a sudden start puttering like it's running out of gas. There was a little lever on the floor. You flipped it over. It was a reserve tank and you got one gallon of gas left and then you get to the gas station. That was, that was true. I don't know if all 62 Volkswagen Beetles had that or not, but mine was special. And I remember one time I'd just been driving it for a little while and I was going down the road in this Beetle, which is just massive car, you know, you know, four guys picked it up one time and set it off the road. You know, that's how big it was. And the thing was, is that when we had this car, I was driving down the road one time and and I saw this 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 creature come out from the side of the road. It was a possum. And I was asking in the first services, do we have possums in the Midwest? And you said you did. I haven't seen too many possums. There must be less possums in the Midwest than there is in Virginia. 
But possums are really dumb animals, right? They can't see very well, and they have a great sense of smell. And so a possum will come out on the road, and what he'll be doing is he'll just be wandering around like, you know, like this with his eyes closed, because it doesn't really matter if he has his eyes open, because he can't see anyway. But he can't smell, and he goes, you know, it's going out sniffing everywhere you see. But he'll just wander out in the middle of the road, right in front of you. And I remember this was happening. This was the first time I encountered this when I was a young driver. And so I was going down the road. And as I was going down the road, this possum comes out. And I swerve to miss the possum. And I go into a ditch. Luckily, I did not die. But I went home and told my dad. And my dad said, Bill, son, never swerve for a possum. They're not worth your life. And from that day forward, I never swerve from a possum again. I mean, if I see a possum now, I'm going down the road and somebody says, the possum, I'm going, okay, boom, you know, and then we. <laughs> Don't swerve for cats, dogs, Fluffy gets out in the road too bad. I know I'm heartless, but, you know, my life and the life of my passengers is greater than a dumb animal. So, um. I know you think less of me now. Those of you who are animal lovers, I really don't care. Um, but the issue is, is we swerve. We swerve when we see things coming. Sometimes we swerve. And we swerve in life as believers. We swerve. We get off track. It's real easy. All of us swerve. And, and the reason we swerve is because we believe some of the myths that we've heard over the years about being a follower of Christ and staying close to Christ. One of the myths we believe so often is this first myth that, uh, is this, is salvation is enough. Just because I'm saved, everything's going to be wonderful now. I mean, there was an old Christian, there was an old hymn that, that I sung growing up. It's, it's, it was this. Now, those of you who grew up in a church may know this hymn. Every Baptist church, every good Baptist church sung this hymn. Every day with Jesus. Is, anybody know it, sweeter than the day before. Oh, isn't that right? I've become a Christian. Every day is great. Who wrote that song must have been in a box. It's the most theologically corrupt hymn of all time. Maybe not. There's some other ones, too. But the issue, the issue that was there is that, you know, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that everything becomes hunky-dory. That everything's fine. Because I know for a fact that saved people swerve. Guys, let me talk to you for a minute. I'm more familiar with you than I am the women, since I'm a guy. Even though I run over dogs and cats. (laughs) Just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that pornography is no longer something you have to deal with. Don't have to deal with anymore. It's still there. It's still a struggle. For all of us in some ways along the way. And we have to admit that. Women, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that now you get on Facebook and you, and you connect with this, this old guy from college or, from, or from, uh, from high school. Like you can do now on Facebook very easily. I'm connected with kids that I used to be in my youth group 25 years ago when I was a youth pastor. And you can get on there, and if you let yourself, it's still the temptation sometimes to start developing a relationship. Oh, how's it going with you? And it goes further and further and further. And I know this happens. Even people 
But Christians swerve. Because when you become a believer in Christ, yes, you're saved. And, and Christ has given, given his life to, to pay the payment for you and you've accepted him. But the problem is, is that we don't become perfect immediately. We never become perfect while we're upon this earth. And we still have issues. So just because you're a Christian and it's because you have salvation doesn't mean it's enough to stay on the, on the straight path with God. A second myth that so often many people have is emotion will sustain my devotion. Emotion will sustain my devotion. You know, if I just have these Christian experiences and feel high and close to God, you know, man, I go to camp, you know, and I can get all excited. I go on a mission trip, you know, and man, I feel close to God. I mean, I, you make commitments in that. Or you go to a Christian concert and man, the, you know, and you're all jumping up and down and you're excited and. And then you go home the next, you know, next day, next week. And that emotion will not sustain your devotion. I mean, it, it happens in everything. I've seen it. I've seen it everywhere. I mean, I've seen it in sports. I mean, what's happening two or three weeks from now around here besides school starting? Somebody told me school. That's not the question. That's that's secondary. What's the big deal? Football. I know you knew the answer. It was here. It was in Virginia. It's in Texas. Wherever you go, it's the same. You know. We're all jacked up. But the issue is, the issue is, is that I love, by the way, guys, I'll be at football games. I'll be there. I love them. I love sports. But you know what happened? I found it's really interesting about emotion in football or emotion in sports. Football is the, the, the number one coming up, so I can talk about it right now. Is it, you know, I've gone to games before, you know, and the team, the home team is doing great, whether it be Metamora, Washington, or Salem High School when the, they won five, four or five state championships in a row right before I moved here. You know, I don't care what it is, what's going on. You go there and the fans will be all pumped up, you know, and the team's doing well. And everybody's jumping up and down and screaming. But the next week, if they come in there and, you know, things aren't going well, Whoa, all of a sudden, you know, I've never gone to a game where the team's getting beat by 30 points and everybody's going, yay! Thank you. Okay. Echo. And the thing is, is we got to understand is that that, that doesn't, and, and let me tell you what else happens everywhere I've been, everywhere. You know, <laughs> team, as long as teams winning, there'll be tons and tons of fans there, and usually the fan base starts drifting down when... I remember a few years ago, um, one of the teams that I'm, I'm a Virginia Tech Hokie fan. It's where I used to live, and you know, football season. You know, I'm a, I'm sorry, Big Ten fans. I mean, there's nobody's good at Virginia Tech, but anyway, <clears throat> I know you don't think that, but anyway, uh, but that's just my prejudice. But the issue is, is that I remember a few years ago, uh, one of the big rivals of Virginia Tech was Clemson, uh, Clemson University, when they used to be good. Uh, they got a little bit better now. But they used to be pretty good. And, there, and Clemson wasn't actually Virginia Tech's biggest rival, but for some reason Tech thought that Clemson was their biggest rival years ago. And what happened was is that Clemson was playing South Carolina, and South Carolina and Clemson are in the same state. Now, I don't know if we have that. We really don't have the same kind of dichotomy here as we, they do there. But in that state, you either, you either and you love Clemson and you hate South Carolina or vice versa. I mean, literally. I mean, people will move out of the same neighborhood because they find out their neighbor, next door neighbor is a Clemson fan or a South Carolina fan. It's that crazy. But what had happened is that year in the first game of the season or second game of the season, Clemson was playing South Carolina. They always play each other. 
And the game was going along, and it was, you know, pretty good. And all of a sudden, C.J. Spiller, a running back for, for Clemson, just broke loose and took off down the field, you know, and the, the game turned around, and Clemson won, and, and, you know, and everybody was excited and pumped, and they were jumping up and down, and jumping up and down, and jumping up and down. And it was great. And the emotion, man, for a whole week, man, they were, they were on cloud nine, all the Clemson fans. The next week, they came to Blacksburg, Virginia. This is the good part of the story, especially what happens next. And they claimed to, claim, to Blacksburg, Virginia. And the first, maybe the first series of the game, C.J. Spiller took off again. Great running back. Took off again, ran for a touchdown, and all the Clemson fans were screaming and hollering. They sustained the emotion of the week. But then <laughs> the Hokie defense shut them down the rest of the game. The whole rest of the game. And then destroyed them. That was the best part of the game. Yeah, I see. I like football, too. And guess what the Clemson fans were doing at the end of that game? They weren't jumping up and down. They weren't screaming. They weren't doing anything. See, emotion will not sustain devotion. And so often we think in the Christian life, well, if I just have these experiences, then, then I can stay close to God. Well, no, that doesn't work that way. Another, another thing that so often... A myth that we believe is that the more I know, the less I will sin. The more I know, the less I will sin. You know, if I, we believe that information leads to intimacy, if I know enough about God and I studied enough of the Bible and I stay into God's word, then I'll grow close to God. Well, no, information does not lead to intimacy with God. It is information that is applied that leads to intimacy with God. Information that's lived out. That's what disciples do. Remember disciple, the definition is someone who says yes to Jesus. Now, what's the question? It's not about knowing. It's about knowing and doing that leads to an intimacy with God, a closeness to God. And so uh, that myth is just something that we need to get out of our minds. And then finally, the final myth, and there's probably others as well, is this. I need to make more promises to God. If I make a bunch of promises to God, it will help me to stay close to God. Let me just blow this one out of the water right off the bat. And let me do it scripturally. Let's go back to the guy we were talking about earlier, Peter. Remember Peter? Walk on water, Peter. Peter, always the leader. A lot of things rhyme with Peter, doesn't it? Uh, All these things about Peter. I mean, he was incredible. Super Christian. Back in chapter 26, the first few verses there, actually verses 34 and 35, Jesus is talking to Peter and they're in the upper room and they're getting ready. Jesus is getting ready to be arrested and go out into the garden. And then Peter, Jesus says, says to his disciples, you guys are going to fall away from me. And what does Peter say? Verse 34, Peter replies, even if I all, even if all these other guys, and I'm sure he was pointing at them, all these other guys fall away on, on your account, I never will. Never. Then Jesus looks at him and says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared again, second time, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And then it says all the other disciples kind of agreed with him. This is the way it's going to be. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. What did they all do? Just a few verses later, just a few I don't know, hours later, they all fled. They all betrayed. They left. And Peter did exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. He betrayed. It's not about making promises because you can make all the promises you want. 
And just making a promise, even for super Christians like Peter, with the guys of faith like that, are not enough to sustain your focus and your commitment to God. The reason is because we, we are not in a neutral environment. In 1 Peter 5, 8, it says this, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There is a lot more truth in the little sketch you saw up here a while ago than you believe. We think it's funny. And it it was funny. It was cute. But it's real. The Bible tells us that, that Satan actually is trying to go around and trip us up. And I'm sure one of the things he's trying to do is say, you can do it all by yourself. Just have some Christian experiences. Just get some more information. Go to more Bible studies. Uh, just, just make some promises to God. Because salvation is enough. That's all you need. And you'll stick close to God. But Scripture says that's not true. Because one of the primary ways that disciples deal with this problem, with this inability of us of staying on the straight and narrow and not swerving, is what it says... In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, it says this. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more you see as the day approaching. Two things there it says that we're to do. It says we're to be so connected with people that we do two things. In our, have people in our life that do two things. One is to spur one another on. Now, spurring. Um, I don't ride horses, okay? You have a whole horse ministry thing going on, okay? Got on the front row down here. And, and if I understand spurring correctly, probably because of the, what you're doing with the horses, it's probably not when you spur a horse. I doubt the horse goes, oh, that feels good. I, I know that to be not true. Okay. Spurring could be somewhat discomfortable. Not very comfortable. It's, it's, it's not very good. And the thing, but the reason for spurring is what? Is to urge the horse in the right direction. It's saying that's what we need to do to each other. We need to have somebody in our life that will look us in the eye and say to us as a real friend, not, oh, just, that's what you're doing. Yeah, you're living together. Like, that's fine. No problem. God, we're going to live under grace. They look in the eye and go, that's not the healthiest thing for you in your relationship. You need to reconsider this. How it affects you. How it affects your kids. What it affects if you'd have that. That whole deal, whatever it may be in your life. Someone who will spur you on toward love and good deeds. Toward doing what God says that we're to be and who we're to be. We need somebody in your life for years and years and years. Um, for the last 20 plus years, I've had an accountability partner intentionally as a pastor, but more importantly as a Christian. An accountability partner is not somebody who meets with you and says, okay, how's things going? Oh, yeah, this is Patrick. Just keep doing the same thing. I don't care what you're doing. Just do the same thing. No, accountability partner, Carl Figg's my accountability partner now. And for the last nine years, I've met with him almost every week. And we'll look at each other and we ask questions like, okay, Bill, you'll look at me. It's, it's two ways. How's it going with you and your wife and your relationship? Now, we don't say it this way, but we mean it. What kind of dumb things have you done recently that really caused you to have problems with your relationship? How's it with you and your kids? How's the relationship with you and God? Are you doing your regular quiet time with God? Are you reading God's Word personally, not just for studying Scripture so you can do a sermon? 
We ask each other those questions and we ask ourselves and we and we've made ourselves accountable. If we're struggling with something, the one person that knows this besides my wife would be Carl. We have confidentiality. We have we have that we have that kind of relationship because I know that I will swerve if I don't have somebody to remain accountable. Because all Christians swerve, even pastors. We've seen that. We need somebody to spur us on. And you need to put, be in a connection with somebody in some way, whether it be a small group or an accountability partner or whatever. Then it says it's not giving up meeting together or some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to spur one another on, and we need to encourage one another. There's all kinds of ways of encouraging people. Last night, my wife and I celebrated our, well, yesterday, celebrated our 33rd uh, anniversary. Yeah, a long time. It's not very long compared to my parents. Thank you. Um, and last night, we always do, one of the things we do um, is, uh, we do weird things. Um, we went out looking for weights, uh, dumbbells yesterday. Uh, that was our anniversary present to each other. Uh, we hadn't found them yet, but anyway, you know, because we're setting up our own workout room downstairs. But uh, but the issue, I mean, that sounds romantic. Uh, it's great. Okay. But anyway, the, the thing is, we went out to dinner last night, though. We always go out to dinner in a nice restaurant. So we went over, and one of our new favorite restaurants is a place called Biagi's, Silver Cross Town. And it's become one of our favorite restaurants because I discovered, and I'll tell you this because, uh, just to warn you for future reference, I found out not long ago that I'm about four or five months ago that I'm gluten uh, intolerant or whatever, and so I can't have any wheat. So don't bring me any cookies, any bread, any donuts, anything like that, because you'll cause me to sin greatly. And also mess up my soul system. And so uh, I want to keep losing weight and going the direction I'm going because it's changed in my life. And I, I like it. Okay? But we went there because it has a uh, great menu and some great gluten-free food there. It has a whole menu on that. And, I thought, yeah. and uh, we went there. Well, when we got there in the restaurant, we had a reservation. And we went into the restaurant. And what happened was is... Um, this couple from the church was there with their kids, a couple of kids, and they're, and they're one of the set of their parents. And, and they were just finishing up eating dinner, and they were celebrating one of the parents' birthdays. And, and we were talking to them and having a great time. And, and, uh, and then they left, and we were just hadn't gotten our food yet and finally got our food. And then, then the waitress comes over to us and says the strangest thing. She looks at me and she says, well, uh, you might want to order more food. I'm going like, well, I know you're trying to sell food here, but, you know, what's the deal? Uh, she's going like, because you already have a tab set up. The people before you paid for you. And they said this much money. And I'm going, really? I can have dessert. I never have dessert. I'm too cheap. Literally. And, and the thing is, is that, you know, so that was a cool thing. That was encouraging. But what was really encouraging is when we finished our meal and we were getting ready to leave, my wife got on her, pulled out her cell phone and she had the, the number of this lady. And she texts the lady and says, this is so nice. Thank you so much. And what she said in the, in the text back to us was, you know, I don't know word for word, but generally she said, you know, well, we're just so, uh, so glad to do this for you guys because we love you guys so much. And we, we thank you so much for what you do and what you mean to our family. And I thought, man, that was encouraging. You know, that's pretty cool. That's one form of encouragement. Another form of encouragement, though, can be things like when we see some, somebody is struggling with something. And we encourage them to do the right thing. I mean, encouragement is not like, you know, we can sometimes we can shoot, shoot our own wounded in the Christian church. 
I mean, if somebody's going through a tough time, what we need to do, I mean, you would never, if you have a little child, all of us that have, how many of you have, have kids? Anybody here have kids? Anybody? Most of you. Some of you younger ones, you'll figure this out later on. But one of the things you do is when you have kids, one of the coolest things that ever happens in your first kid's life is when they take their first step, right? Say their first word. Take your first step. You know, and the funny thing about it is people nowadays with cell phones will take videos of kids taking their first step. And I've watched some of these videos. Look at my kid that took the first step. And I'm going like, I look at the video, I'm going like, really? Because usually when they take the first step, it's like, you know, they kind of like are standing up and they kind of like, there it is, and they fall. You know, really it's their first really good fall, that's what it is. And the parents are getting so excited about it, they'll call that their first step. But what you would never do when they do that, you would never look at your child when they do that. You want to encourage them to go, oh, hello, Johnny and Susie, that was great, just keep going. You, that's what you say. But you would never do this. You would never, ever in a million years look at the kid when they try to take their first step and go in like, if you can't do any better than that, just get out of the house. But that's what we do many times to Christians, to fellow believers. They stumble. They fall. And instead of encouraging them, we say, hey, if you can't do any better than this, just get out the door. See, we've got to ask the question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? We need people in our lives intentionally, who spur us on and encourage us because we all swerve. We swerve all over the place. That's why you and I can't do life alone. God didn't make us that way. Disciples, every disciple in Scripture only stumbled when they tried to do it on their own. Doesn't even mean you're going to do it perfectly then, but at least you don't do it quite as badly. So I want to encourage you this morning as we, as we close up, before we sing our last song, I want to encourage you to do one thing. Take out the bulletins that you have, if you pulled out a bulletin this morning, if you picked one up. If you didn't pick one up, you pick one up on your way out and still do this anyway. I want you to actually do something right now, okay? In the bulletin there's a sheet, and it says something on it about the story. And uh, in, in that sheet, it, said, it looks kind of like this. And it says, finding your story in God's story. You heard, saw a little video earlier on um, that we're going to do something starting September 9th that's going to be a, a, a survey. It's not just a survey of the Bible. It's looking at God's Word chronologically. And, and uh, it's a condensed version of the Bible. We're going to read the whole thing through, starting in Genesis and even in Revelation, over a 31-week period, starting next year. And we're going to look at what God's Word said to us about His story and about how it affects our story. But part of that is not just coming on Sunday mornings to worship, but part of that is being involved with other people who are living life out together, who are spurring one another on, and who are encouraging one another, and are doing this together. So what I want you to do this morning, I just want you to make one commitment, if you will. And this is not something you have to pray about, because this is straightforward, okay? Some things you need to pray about before you do. This is, this is in Scripture. This is what disciples do. If you're already in a small group, I want you to write down your name, your address, your information there, and put just write down, I'm already in a small group, this is the group I'm in, this is what it means. But if you're not already in a small group, I want you to consider this morning just making a commitment to try a group, not a long-term commitment. 
Just try a group. We're starting September 9th, that week, sometime that week. And we have groups that meet all over the place, all times of the day, with all kind of demographics, all kind of life stages, all kind of people. We have probably 20, 25 groups already. We want to form even more. I'm in a group of men on Saturday morning. My wife's going to be a group of women on another time. You know, there's, there's all these things going on. There's, there's couples groups. There's, there's young singles groups. There's groups everywhere. Our students are going to be in groups as well and doing things as well. So what I want you to do is to write down your information. And there's one thing on there that says, well, I will lead or participate in a regular story time. Oh, excuse me. I will join or lead our weekly story or life group. And I want you to check that and put your information down. And if you do that, what you'll be doing is that we will get in contact with you and we will say, hey, here are the groups that are available. We encourage you to try this group out. We encourage you to try this group out. And beginning then, do something that disciples do, followers of Christ do. Help yourself from swerving by being connected with people and living your life with them and spurring one another on and encouraging one another because we can't do life alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your blessings and your goodness to us. We would pray that you would just uh, this morning as we make these commitments to you and as we go forward as individuals, as we look at the other things that will be coming up in the next few weeks about what it means to be a disciple of and how it changes our hearts, and as we ask the question, what does love require of me, that it will be very clear in our lives. They will not only make commitments, but will follow through and do these things. And in doing these things, doing the things that disciples does, it will change our heart to become more and more a disciple of you. You know, salvation is not because of works, God, but it's because of what you've already done. But once we become a believer, we're to follow through and, and, and live life in a, such a way that would just honor and please you. That's what a disciple does. It's not just an appendage to our life, but it's the center focus of what we are and what we do. Guide us now, God, this day and every day as we strive to serve you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, There will be some ushers at the door uh, as you go out this morning, so if you fill that, she just hand your sheet to them. Uh, It's following this closing song. Uh, Be back with us next week as we look at another area of what God does when he changes us and makes us into his disciples.